Thank you, Gordon, and good morning, everyone. It's worth having those two readings um, handy, whether you use a, a bit of paper or something um, to do that. Hopefully, if you've either bought your own Bible, that's fantastic. If you don't have one, there might be one in front of you there. It's well worth having those two readings with you. And I think there are some outlines left as well, if you would like one of those. Josh, Josh will hand them around. So if you'd like one, if you just raise your hand, Josh can get that to you. Just while they're being handed out, let me quickly mention something uh, coming up for us in a couple of weekends' time. Not next weekend, but the weekend after we have our uh, Vision Weekend, which begins with the Vision Dinner on Saturday, the 4th of March. And I want to commend that to you. If you haven't had a chance to register for that, today would be a good day to register. And Celia, who's sitting at the back uh, there, if, if silly, if you just wave, um, she'll be able to register you today if you'd like to come along to the dinner, and I'm hoping everyone will be able to. Uh, we're having that at the Junior School Hall of Barker College, um, uh, and we're going to send out a map so that people know uh, where to go if you've not been there uh, before. Actually, the whole weekend we're going to be there, not the whole weekend, but on Saturday night, and then again on Sunday morning, the 5th of March, we're going to have one combined service, all our congregations uh, together at 10am, uh, again, uh, in the junior school hall at Barker. And if that wasn't enough fun for the weekend, uh, we're going to finish after that combined service with our annual general meeting. Um, so I need to give notice about that today. So there you go. Uh, it's on the 5th of March. About 11.15 is when we think it will be. And at the back uh, of church here, you'll see a blue form, which will indicate the, the roles that we'll need to elect for our parish uh, on that day and there's a little description on that sheet so that uh, you can see the nature of the roles. Then there's a smaller sheet, a white one, uh, A5 sheet, uh, if you wanted to nominate someone either for parish councillor, warden, synod rep or parish nominator, um, that's where to, uh, to, how to do that. And as I say, the blue sheet will give you details of the sort of people uh, suited uh, to those roles. So I commend that to you. Right, let's uh, jump into John uh, 13. I think if you do have a pew Bible, John 13 is page 1674. And if you've got another finger, uh, Jonah 4, which we'll get to a little bit later, is page 1438. Uh, and that's where we're going. As we continue this, this short series in February on who we are as a church, uh, who we are as God's family. And so far, this is what we've seen. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, we saw we are those who heed God's voice. Uh, he's our king. And so we humbly listen. We humbly obey. And you may remember James 1 told us, if we do this, we will be blessed as a church. Uh, here's the second thing we saw. This was last week. Uh, we are those who uh, are to adopt God's mindset. And we saw that in John 13 last week, this incredible mindset of a humble servant that the Lord Jesus has. We're meant to follow in his footsteps, to have the same mindset. And again, we were told uh, by Jesus in John 13, if you do this, you will be blessed. Uh, and so we come now uh, really to the heart of the matter, or matters of the heart. We come to what is the heart of our church. What sort of heart should we have uh, as a church family? What, what's the heart that we need to drive our mission forward together? And we'll see that heart in John 13. So I hope you've got it open there in front of you. When I say we'll see that heart, actually John 13 is going to give us two for the price of one. It's going to show us two hearts. Uh, here they are. We'll see the heart of a betrayer, and that will be uncomfortably familiar. And we'll see the heart of the betrayed, and that will be like nothing 
else that we've seen in this world. So let's, uh, if you haven't already, let's jump back to John 13 and you remember the scene. Uh, Jesus uh, has been doing this astonishingly humble act for the king of the universe. He's been washing the feet of his disciples and we saw last week that that foot washing is, is just a hint of what he was going to do hours later on the cross when he would serve us by washing us clean of our sins, by shedding his blood. Uh, that sacrifice enabled us uh, to be clean before God, to be restored, to, to be welcomed back into God's family as his church. And what uh, Jesus makes clear in John 13, you may remember, is that he said it's only by coming to him that we can experience that cleaning, that restoration. Uh, he said, unless I wash you, you can have no part in me. Unless we come to Jesus in repentance and faith and trust that what he has done for us on the cross is enough to restore us in God's sight, unless we come to him, uh, we, we're not clean. And, and actually, that's, what, that's where we pick up the story. If you look at verse 10, in amongst the joy of Peter hearing the news from Jesus, you are clean. You are clean, Peter, comes these words in verse 10. You are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. And so here is the other heart emerging in this room. Here, here is another heart, an unclean heart, it seems. So let's look at it together. Here's the first heart we'll see, the heart of the betrayer. And if you jump down to verse 18, you'll see it described there. Jesus says again, I'm not referring to all of you. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. In other words, someone at this very table is going to betray me, says Jesus. Now, as he says these words in verse 18, he's actually quoting an old psalm, Psalm 41, a psalm of King David, where uh, by this stage in uh, David's life as the king of Israel, he's surrounded by enemies and yet he says in Psalm 41, it's not his enemies that he's worried about. A close friend who is eating with him is going to betray him. And so Jesus is using those words to say, I, the king, am about to be betrayed. Now, what's clear, and you would have picked this up as Gordon read it for us, the disciples have no idea who Jesus is speaking about. Uh, but what's brilliant about John's gospel is we're given the inside track. If, you, if you've got John 13 open there, way back in verse 2, we've already been told that it's Judas who will be betraying Jesus. Now, I don't know whether you've ever tried to imagine yourself as being like one of the disciples or perhaps aspired to be like one of the disciples, uh, perhaps Peter with his passion and intensity or or maybe Andrew with his sort of evangelist heart, the first thing he does in John's Gospel is run and tell his brother about Jesus. Or perhaps even Thomas, who even though he's doubting Thomas, he does examine the evidence and does believe. I doubt there is any of us who have wanted to be associated with Judas. Uh, Judas is out on a limb uh, in the Gospels. Uh, the one who is willing to sell Jesus out, the Jesus who's worth more than all the universe put together, he, he trades him in for 30 pieces of silver we're told in the scriptures but while we might not want to be associated with him look closely at his heart as it's revealed to us because here's my contention his heart is our heart uh, the word betray that's used of Judas a number of times in this passage actually just literally means to deliver up to to hand over to to be rid of your obligations to another person that's what betray means to to be done with them that's what Judas is doing. If you read through the, the, the gospel account, he, he's happy to have Jesus as a teacher, and he has had for some three years. But, 
But what Jesus has already made clear is he's more than a teacher. Now, you remember from last week, uh, verse 14, he, he is Lord. He's king over Judas and indeed over us. Now, what seems to be happening here is that Judas is unable to cope with that setup. And so he makes plans to remove Jesus, remove his rule over his life. That's his betrayal. Uh, And I I want to suggest to you that this action of Judas is actually the basic human response to the God of this universe. The essence of sin is to say to God, I don't want you to have control of my life. Uh, I don't mind you as a teacher, and there are many in our world who love the words of Jesus uh, and will quote the words of Jesus. Uh, they're, They're comfortable with his words, but not the idea that he would be king, not the idea that we would have to submit to the words he speaks The heart of humanity is to say to God, no one tells me what to do. The essence of sin is to betray God, to want to be rid of him. And it's actually the picture we get um, elsewhere in the scriptures, in in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Basically, the son says, can we fast track the whole process where at the end uh, end of your life, Father, you'll give me the inheritance. Can we just sort of get to that point now and I'll get all the stuff and have nothing to do with you? And that's exactly what happens in the story. I want all of this, Father, but none of you. That's the heart of sin. Sin is the declaration of autonomy from God the Father. It's betrayal. Betrayal is seeking to be rid of God's rule over us, seeking to be rid of his presence in our life, seeking to be rid of his purpose for us. That's Judas's heart, and indeed it is the human heart. So here's my question as we look at John 13 together. How do you think God responds to betrayal, if this is not just Judas's problem? Uh, how does he respond to our rejection of his rule, uh, our rejection of his love and his purposes? Well, look at the other heart revealed in this room. Have a look at the heart of the one who is betrayed. John 13 is going to watch, uh, we're going to be able to watch the king respond to betrayal. And as we do, remember the very first verse in John 13. Do you remember what Jesus is intending to do? He's intending to show us the full extent of his love. And we saw something of that last week, just how extensive his love is, that even though he's king, he's willing to bend the knee and humbly serve his friends. But what's so wonderful about the the, the second part of John 13 that we're looking at today is that we see it extends further still. Here is one who is willing to love even his enemies. Uh, Here is his heart for the betrayer. Two things I want you to observe about his heart. Here's the first of them. And in one sense, this is the most obvious. Uh, How does the heart of the one betrayed respond? Well, verse 21 tells us that his heart was troubled. Uh, Verse 21, Jesus was troubled in spirit or in heart. Uh, It seems an obvious response, isn't it? The betrayal of Judas in this moment, the one he he counted as a friend, it troubles his heart. But what's remarkable about the word used here is that that word troubled was actually used uh, to describe Jesus' heart Two chapters earlier in John 11, as he heard news of his dear friend Lazarus dying. In John 11, we're we're told that Jesus' heart is troubled as he's confronted by the grave of Lazarus. And and we're, we're told there that his whole spirit is shaken by that moment. The guts of God churned up. That's what's happening here in John 13. Do you want to see how God feels about our betrayal of him, how he feels about a world that wants to take all his good gifts that he graciously keeps giving us and yet have nothing to do with him? Well, it troubles him. It churns his heart. God sees our betrayal and he is troubled. His heart shakes at it. But 
This word troubled, speaking of his heart's reaction to betrayal, it speaks of something else that his heart feels as well. Uh, did you know that Jesus' reaction to Lazarus's death, it's not just tears, it's white-hot anger at this intrusion on his good creation. That's how God feels about our betrayal. Uh, he is utterly opposed to our rejection of him. Utterly opposed to the sin that results from our rejection of him. Opposed and, and coming in rightful judgment. There's the first thing. God is troubled by our betrayal. But there's something else again. Look closely. He's also troubled for the betrayer. His heart is broken for his enemy. He is heartbroken for Judas in this scene. Remember, that we're told here repeatedly in the passage that the other disciples don't know who the betrayer is. Uh, you see there, verse 22, they ask, who is it, Lord? And actually in Matthew's gospel, in this same scene, uh, Judas chimes in, surely not I, Lord. And in one sense, he seems the least likely candidate. Uh, if you sort of compile the, the gospel accounts together, the historians tell us that Judas was more educated, more wealthy, more set up than, than the, the rest of them. He was from Kirioth, a sort of a a highbrow suburb rather than Galilee. He's not the sort of guy you'd expect to do this. And yet he remains anonymous as the betrayer here. And I think here again you see Jesus' heart. In this small room with each of the disciples and Jesus leaning against each other, if there'd been even the slightest hint of who it was, they would have picked it up. But they, they don't seem to know. Jesus, though, knows Judas's heart, but no one else does. Why is that? Well, I think it's because even now Jesus is going for Judas's heart. Remember, he would have washed Judas's feet as he did everybody else's. Imagine that moment. Remember his words in verse 10, you are clean, but not all of you. Judas, my friend, not all of you. And even the way the table is set, if you look closely, if you piece together the information from John's gospel and the other gospels, what's clear is that it's Judas and John who are leaning against Jesus, right next to Jesus. It's as if Jesus has said as they enter the upper room, Judas, come sit with me. We, we must talk. He's going for Judas's heart right up to the end. And then we read that the end comes. Do you see verse 25? John leans back against Jesus and he says, Who is it, Lord? Uh, Jesus responds, and perhaps only loudly enough for Judas to hear, It's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Uh, in this culture, to sort of take a morsel of food like that and to dip it in the sauce or whatever's in the, this bowl and to pass it to someone was an act of deep friendship, of connection, of fellowship. And here is Jesus' heart for the betrayer. Judas, here is my friendship. Take it. It's the way back. Do you see God's heart? Troubled by betrayal, yes, but troubled for the betrayer and even now pursuing the betrayer. I wonder if you know that God is like this. Uh, it's, it's wonderful, isn't it, that he is like this? Uh, it reminds me of 2 uh, Peter 3, 9, which declares the reality that God will come in judgment against those who live opposed to him. He will come in judgment. But here's what it says about that promise. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Uh, our God's heart when it comes to betrayal is so slow. I mean, how, how different that is to our hearts when we feel betrayed or wronged by another person. We're so quick to presume or, 
or quick to justice or quick to vindication, not his heart. It's, it's because his priority is repentance. His priority is restoration. That's what he's after. Let me ask you this. How long, if you are a Christian, how long did God have to wait for your heart to repent and trust him? Or maybe this question, is he still waiting? If so, what are you waiting for? John 13 shows us God's heart is patient, but it, but it also shows us that God's heart is just. He won't wait forever. And he won't wait forever because his heart is set on the restoration of all things that will only come when he comes in judgment. It's like the uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says this. It's the kindness of God, the patience of God, the mercy of God. It's meant to lead to repentance. That's his goal. He will not be ignored. He will judge. Jesus leans towards Judas. Here is my friendship, old friend. Take it. But the moment passes. Judas takes the bread, but not the friendship. And he makes his choice. Get out of my life, Jesus. That's betrayal. We're told uh, in John's Gospel, in just a few words, a vivid picture, he got up and went out, and it was night. That's code in John for this is a dark, tragic moment. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Let me ask you, do you see yourself in his response? If you are here this morning and you've not come to Jesus in repentance and faith, you've not come and said, please wash me, you've not received that offer of a new start, if you still live independent of God, if you're still in charge of your own life, saying, I want all of this that you give me but none of you, then you do have Judas's heart. And if that's you, see God's patience. See the tragedy of not responding. See the justice of his judgment. But if you have come to him for a new start, and that is what our church is about, you are clean. You're forgiven. You're restored. Rejoice in that. But as you rejoice in that, let me encourage you to do something else as well. See God's heart in this moment. Feel with him the tragedy of this scene. Does it trouble you? that there are so many in our world like this? Does, does it churn your heart as it does Jesus? I suspect for us the problem is that we often don't have the heart for that sort of response. I mean, there is a sense in this scene that all the, all the disciples are just breathing a sigh of relief. Phew, it's not me, I'm clean. But that's not to be our heart because it's not our God's heart. You know, I, I remember reading years ago that um, the claim goes that as the Titanic was sinking that many of the rescue boats that left that sinking uh, Titanic left uh, some half full, some even less than that. And I guess the questions that were asked afterwards is, why was that? And there's sort of two explanations given. One is that for many of the people on the sinking ship, in the early stages of its sinking, there was just complete denial of the disaster coming and they were quite happy to stay on the boat, thinking it'll be fine. But then there was the other explanation, which is for some of the rescue boats, as they started to fill up, they felt, well, full enough. And off they went. I wonder if our church is full enough. The church God is building is not a cruise ship, it's a rescue vessel. The church God is building is to be an echo of his own heart for the betrayer. The heart that leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one. <laughs> Of course, the tragedy in our area, and we're not alone, uh, but it is true of our area, is that the percentages are reversed. There's 1% in the rescue boat and 99% in the sinking ship. And while God's heart is for the church, it is also for those in the sinking ship. And so I want you to see God's heart. 
See him leaning against Judas. This has always been his heart. Uh, way back in, in Genesis 6, we see his trouble, troubled heart with our sin. He grieves over it and his trouble for the betrayer. And, and as we finish, uh, I want you to see that from our other reading. Have a look at Jonah 4 if you've got it there in front of you or flick to Jonah 4. And he, Here's a whistle-stop tour of, of Jonah to get to chapter 4. God sees a city, Nineveh. Uh, a city with its heart turned against him to a man and a woman. And he sends Jonah, his prophet, to warn that city and call them back to him. And Jonah, we're told, runs away. And at first it looks like we, we assume he's afraid to go, but eventually he does go. I'm cutting out the whole fish bit. Eventually he does go and he, he witnesses a whole city turn their heart back to God. And uh, God shows mercy because that's his heart. But then plot twist, Jonah 4, Jonah reacts with anger. And why? Well, what's in his heart? Two things, it seems, from the book of Jonah. One, it's his own proud heart. He is more worthy of God's mercy than these people. And then there's his selfish heart, his own rescue, his own comfort is all he's concerned about. And truth is, the same thing is going on in this upper room with the disciples. Surely not me, Lord, they say. And if you read the other accounts, while they're saying that, they're also asking, can we ask of those who remain, which one is the most important? That seems an important question at this moment. Self-focus is what's going on in this room. And it's even more pronounced in Jonah 4. Did you, did you hear it as, as Gordon ran, uh, read the passages? As, as, as Nineveh's future hangs in the balance... Jonah is sitting above the city, enjoying the comfort of a vine. And, and if you, verse 6 of Jonah 4, we're told, as Jonah sort of sits there in his pleasure pad, we're told he's very happy about the vine. That's his focus. God asks, do you have any reason to be angry, Jonah? Well, he does have reason to be angry. Do you see it there in verse 8 of Jonah 4? His reason to be angry is that the sun comes and it withers the vine and all of a sudden his pleasure pad turns into a sauna And, uh, well, he says, I would rather die than live in a world where beautiful things like this vine die. And at that point, God has got him. God says, look at your anger, Jonah. If you feel that way about the vine that you didn't tend or cause to grow, how do you think the gardener feels? Think on that, Jonah, and then multiply it by 120,000 times because Nineveh has 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. You feel compassion for the vine, Jonah, because you saw it come to life. You enjoyed that. Well, well, I was there, Jonah, when every single person in Nineveh was born. I saw their first breath. I rejoiced over them as a father. I, I saw their joys and their, their, their plans and their purposes. I saw them go through life. I saw them because they're mine. And then, as Romans 1 says, I saw them take glory and exchange it for shame. I saw them take the truth about God and exchange it for a lie. I saw them as a father sees a child take every good gift he's ever given and twist it all up. I saw that, Jonah, 120,000 times. And no, you don't get used to it. What father would? Tell me, Jonah, says God, should I not be troubled by that great city? Do you see your God's heart? Troubled by betrayal, yes, but troubled for the betrayer and pursuing the betrayer. Church, we are those who are meant to heed God's voice, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, and part of his voice to us, his word to us, is to echo this heart in this place. You know, one of the most wonderful promises that God gives us as his clean and restored people is the promise of a new heart. 
Uh, Ezekiel 36 says he will wash us clean, as we, we've been thinking about uh, in John 13. But then he says, here's what else I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. And that's what we need if we're going to echo his heart. It is his spirit that will give us uh, this ability to uh, have our hearts beat as his does. Uh, and we need that because if you look further in John 13, we're, we're given this command as his people. John 13 verse 34, it says, A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. And the way the Spirit enables us to echo God's heart is by keeping us connected to that heart that loves like that. You know, a couple of chapters later in John, uh, John's Gospel, in John 15, Jesus says, here's how you're going to do that. Abide in me. Stay connected to me. That's our job as a church. That's why it was so important what we saw a couple of weeks ago, to keep heeding his voice, because the more we do, the more we will see his heart and the more he will change our heart. You know, I, I don't know much about these things, but I, I've been told that a baby's heart uh, starts to beat uh, about four weeks after conception. And at that stage, the baby is the size of a tip of a pen. Uh, that tiny little heart, and you imagine how small the heart is if the whole baby is the size of a tip of a pen, that tiny little heart is kick-started by a much bigger, stronger heart, the mother's heart utterly dependent on that big, strong heart to to beat. Well, that's how it is with us, God's children, that his heart beats like this is how our hearts can learn to. And not just at the beginning of our lives as Christians, but all the way through, because as he says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your love for us is a a faithful, compassionate love that runs for our rescue despite our betrayal of you. And we thank you that you are like that. Give us hearts like that for this world, we pray. Amen. And we're going to sing together and we're going to sing of our need to remain dependent on the Lord Jesus to live like this as a church. So let's stand together and sing, Yet not I, but through Christ in me.